Welcome to Truth and Liberty. Thank you for joining our daily live call-in broadcast where trusted leaders bring biblical insights to the issues and you can call in and get your questions answered in real time. According to the Bible, it's the truth you know that sets you free. So call in today to get answers, information, and resources to help you stand for truth and effect godly change in our nation and the world. And now here's your host, Richard Harris. Hello, everybody. This is Richard Harris, and I want to welcome you to today's Truth and Liberty live call-in show. Uh, today actually is a pre-recorded episode. Uh, uh, we have a special guest with us today, and we have somewhat of a Christmas theme that we're going to bring to you. Uh, I'm going to tell you more about that in just a second. Let me share with you a couple of announcements, if I may, before we get started. First of all, thank you for tuning in, and I hope that all of you had a wonderful Christmas holiday with your families and and just a joyful time celebrating the birth of Jesus. Uh, you know, um, uh, we've got, uh, we never stop having events here at Andrew Womack Ministries. There's always something great right around the corner. And I just wanted to share with you that coming up on January 4th through the 6th in Phoenix, Arizona, Andrew Womack is going to be having his Phoenix Gospel Truth Conference. And uh, Andrew is going to be ministering along with Pastor Jim Baker. And if you haven't heard Jim Baker before or don't not sure who he is, you ought to go on our website there at awmi.net and, and uh, read his bio. Jim is a fantastic teacher and minister of the gospel. He's a pastor who has uh, seen many miracles and, and uh, healings take place under his ministry. He's got a powerful revelation of healing and uh, prosperity. You won't want to miss this GTC. So check that out on awmi.net, January 4th through the 6th in Phoenix. Also, wanted to mention uh, January 27th, Andrew Womack is going to be ministering along with our, our good friend E.W. Jackson at the Stand Foundation uh, and called Church Service. That's January 27th in Chesapeake, Virginia. And so uh, if you're in the uh, Virginia area, maybe you could uh, take uh, that Sunday, January 27th, and go hear Andrew and Bishop E.W. Jackson at his church there. So you can find information about this um, at thecalled.org or at standamerica.us. All right, guys, listen, today uh, Bill Federer is joining me um, live, uh, not live, but from, uh, from Florida. And uh, Bill is on our board here at Truth and Liberty and has become a great friend. He's just one of the most knowledgeable people I have ever known in my life. I would put him up against any so-called historian at any university. He has a vast knowledge of not just American history, but world history. Bill has written, I think, over 20 books, uh, including his latest, I think it's your latest bill, Socialism, the Real History from Plato to the Present, How the Deep State Capitalizes on Crises to Consolidate Control. Uh, bill, thanks for coming on the show today. It's awesome to have you with us. Hey, it's great to be with you, Richard. Well, Bill, you know, I, I invited you today because um, our offices here at AWM uh, are, are closed today uh, so that employees can celebrate Christmas and so on. Uh, but we we still have our Truth and Liberty show. So we're pre-recording this. But I invited you to come on because you've actually written another book that uh, is really amazing. It's called There Really Is a Santa Claus, The History of St. Nicholas and Christmas Holiday Traditions. Uh, what an amazing book. What an amazing 
study you've made of the tradition of Santa Claus. And so I just thought it would be awesome to take today to let you sort of share about Santa Claus, so to speak. How did we arrive at this idea of a Santa Claus? What's the truth about uh, about the origins of it? And, you know, the other Christmas uh, traditions uh, that we have. But um, <clears throat> that's what that's what I brought you on today to talk about. So um, before I before you get started on it, though, let me just cover some basics. You're, you've got a daily email that you send out every day uh, to all of your subscribers, and it's called the American Minute. How can people get a hold of that email? Because it's one of the best resources you can get. If you want to learn about American history, world history, uh, from a biblical perspective, you need to get Bill Federer's email. So how can people get a hold of that, Bill? Well, thank you, Richard. It's AmericanMinute.com. Excuse me. Uh, AmericanMinute.com. Awesome. Well, uh, one other thing, I, j I just got to say this. So uh, last time I saw you was just a few days ago at uh, the National Association of Christian Lawmakers event in Washington, D.C. And uh, the, our speaker of the House, Mike Johnson, was the keynote speaker at the awards program there where Andrew uh, Womack actually received a Lifetime Leadership Award. But it was really great because Speaker Johnson saw you in the crowd, called you out, and he told us all that he keeps on his desk a copy of your encyclopedia of founding father quotations. I don't know the exact name of the book, but it was your it was your first book, right? It was the one that sort of catapulted your ministry. And so that was a great uh, moment for the Speaker of the House to to say that publicly and to recognize you there in that setting. No, well, that was very humbling and unexpected. <laughs> well, how many copies have you sold of that book by now? It's got to be a jillion. I, I don't know. I've got it's, one. It's an amazing resource. Over half a million. Uh, Focus on the family sold several hundred thousand copies. And, but um, it's just a collection of quotes uh, arranged alphabetically by the person that said them. Abigail Adams at the front and Washington at the back and has all the end notes. So you, they're all verified quotes. And uh, it's a great resource for teachers and students and people that are speakers. And uh, just to have everything Jefferson said about God or Lincoln or Washington or Booker T. Washington uh, right there handy. Yeah, that's amazing. Well, if it's good enough for the Speaker of the House, then I suppose it ought to be good enough for us. Well, Bill, uh, why don't we get started talking about Christmas? Um, your book, it, There Really Is a Santa Claus, um, uh, what, what caused you to write that book and why, why did you think that would be a good thing to do? Yeah, so parents will sell, tell kids, well, we don't celebrate Christmas because Santa is Satan. So you can change the letters around. So it's like... <laughs> It's a hard sell to kids that, that their friends are getting presents from this bad guy. And it's like, no, let's just go in, give the real history of him and redeem it. And he is a godly person. And I'll explain all that. Uh, the word Santa means holy. It's like sanctified. Uh, and you have Santa Fe, holy faith and uh, Santa Monica and Santa Barbara. I mean, it's just it just means uh, holy and um and then the, the Christmas day, I've actually talked to people that said, my kids uh, won't come over to my house and celebrate Christmas for years because they think it's Saturnalia and it's a pagan festival. And, and it's like, no, let's take this apart and show it. And that's what I'm going to do with us uh, today. Um, and so the idea is uh, we can have a, a good, we can know what to keep and what to throw out. And that's what I put together in this book. There really is a Santa Claus. And it's really fun. It's really encouraging. And if you like, I can get into some of it. Well, absolutely. I want you to get into it. Where can people get a copy of that book? 
Well, thank you. It's AmericanMinute.com. All right. Well, there you go. Your one one stop shop. So Amer Amer uh, the, the book on Santa Claus, the Encyclopedia of Quotations, the book on socialism and all your other books are available there as well as signing up for your email. All right. Well, go ahead and tell us then, uh, Bill, who is Santa Claus? How did he originate? And can you just share that story with us? Sure. Um, uh, if I could, I want to give a little bit on December 25th. Why okay. this on December 25th? So uh, the first several centuries, the Christians were focused on the date of Passover, not the date of Christmas. Uh, the Jews had a lunar calendar, and the Christians would ask the rabbis, when's Passover this year, according to the, the Hebrew calendar? And that's when they would celebrate uh, Christmas, excuse me, <laughs> celebrate Easter. Wasn't uh, till the Greeks started to convert to Christianity that the question was raised, when was Jesus born? Believe it or not, the Hebrews did not celebrate birthdays. This is normal in, in Asian countries. Uh, we visited Turkey years ago and my wife, we were with a couple and my wife asked the uh, woman of the house when her birthday was. She goes into the back room, shuffles through some papers and comes out with a piece of paper and say, oh, this is when my birthday was. Didn't even have it memorized. My son lived, worked in Korea for several years. In Korea, they don't celebrate birthdays. On January 1st, everybody in the country turns a year older. And so the Hebrews did not celebrate birthdays. The Greeks did. It was sort of considered a pagan thing. But in the third uh, century, you had Christian leaders uh, looking at this. So let's see if we have some clues. Or like in the detective story, Herod died from 1 to 4 B.C., and in the book of Luke, it says, in the time of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah who belonged to the priestly division of Abijah. What's the priestly division of Abijah? King David in 1 Chronicles 24 takes the Levites and divides them into 24 courses or divisions, family groups. Uh, with the help of Zadok, descendant of Eleazar, Ahimelech, descendant of Ithamar, David separated Levites into divisions for their appointed order of ministering. The first lot fell to Jehoi Arab, and it goes through, lists them all, but then the eighth is to Abijah, and it lists the rest. I'm only concerned with these two names for now, Jehoiarib and Abijah, because Abijah is Zacharias' dad's course, and, uh, but we have to know Jehoiarib. Why? Because we have to know when these courses start, and that's the big question. So Dead Sea Scrolls, uh, were discovered shortly after the Hebrew University in 1962, discovered some more scrolls, and these had the 24 priestly courses on them. And lo and behold, each of the 24 divisions ministered twice a year, taking care of the temple for a week at a time, six months apart. Okay, that's one of the clues, but when did these courses begin? The other clue comes from the temple in Jerusalem was destroyed, uh, on August 4th, 70 AD, according to the Roman Julian calendar, which when you look at the Hebrew calendar, that turns out to be the 9th of Av. And so we now know that the 9th of Av um, was when the temple was destroyed. The Jerusalem Talmud says that the Levi family on duty when the temple was destroyed was Jehoiarib of the first course. And here's even Wikipedia. In the Jewish tradition, Jehoiarib was the priestly course on duty when the second temple was destroyed by the Roman Imperial Army in the second week of the lunar month of Av in 70 AD. And so Jehoiarib's on duty. That is the first course. We can count down seven weeks and we can see 
that Abijah is the family force on duty the last week of September. And so that is an important week. That's the Day of Atonement. And at the end of the week, the Feast of Tabernacles. And that would explain why people were waiting outside for Zechariah to come out. And uh, then uh, Luke 1, 8 says, And it came to pass that while he executed the priest's office before God in the order of his course, there appeared unto him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. The angel said to him, Fear not, Zacharias, thy wife Elizabeth shall bear thee a son. And then Luke 1, 23, When Zacharias' time of service was completed, he returned home. After this, his wife Elizabeth became pregnant, for the and for five months she remained in seclusion. And so that means that the last week of September is when Zechariah is on duty, goes home, his wife becomes pregnant. And so the uh, Byzantine church marks September 23rd, last week of September, as the date of the conception of John the Baptist. And so September 23rd in the Julian calendar, September 25th in the Gregorian calendar, when you match the date. And so if uh, Zechariah, is on duty last week of September. His wife Elizabeth conceives, possibly September 25th. The Bible says that when Elizabeth is in her sixth month of pregnancy is when Mary was visited by the angel and visits Elizabeth. And so six months after September 25th is March 25th. So March 25th, so Luke 1, 26, in the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, descendant of David, virgin's name is Mary. The angel answered, and behold, thy cousin Elizabeth, she also conceived in her old age, and this is the sixth month of her who was called barren. And then, so now, uh, six months after the last week of September is the last week of March. And so, March 25th, from the fourth century on, has been celebrated as the Feast of the Annunciation, when an angel announced to Mary, and she said, uh, I'm the handmaid of the Lord, let it be done unto me according to thy will, and she conceives of the Holy Spirit. Nine months after March 25th is December 25th. So that's how we get the birth of Jesus on December 25th. St. John Chrysostom, a very popular uh, early saint in the fourth century, uh, this is what Susan K. Roll wrote in Toward the Origin of Christmas. St. John Chrysostom counts off the months of Elizabeth's pregnancy and dates Mary's conception to the six months of Elizabeth's and then counts off another nine months to arrive at the birth date of Christ. And on a fourth century book on solstices and equinoxes, our Lord was conceived in the month of March, March 25th, which is the day of the passion of the Lord and of his conception. For on the day he was conceived, on the same he suffered. So this was a belief that the very day that Jesus was conceived and began his ministry is the date that he died and ended his ministry. And um, so Andrew McGowell wrote in How December 25th Became Christmas, Biblical Archaeological Review. He says, it was a common belief that the Messiah fulfilled his mission on the anniversary of its inception. And St. Augustine, important saint on the Trinity, 417 AD, for he, Jesus, is believed to have been conceived on March the 25th of March, upon which day he suffered. So the womb of the virgin in which he was conceived, where no one of mortals was begotten, corresponds to the new grave in which he was buried, wherein was never man laid, neither before him nor since. So Jesus goes into the womb on March 25th, 
and Jesus uh, goes into the grave on uh, March 25th. That was the belief. Now, people say, well, wasn't December 25th Saturnalia, this Roman pagan festival? Well, Saturnalia was really December 17th through the 22nd, and it was not the 25th. And so if you're going to pick a date to overlay something, wouldn't you pick the same date? And so uh, a little astronomy. The Earth revolves around the sun in an elliptical orbit, and which means uh, twice a year, it's the farthest away. Winter solstice, summer solstice, sol means sun, stis means still. So the winter solstice is the, the sun, the Earth is going away from the sun, and then it starts to come back, and for, for two days, it looks like it's in the same place. It's still in the sky. And then, of course, in between is the equinox. Equal means equal, nox means night. And so you have exactly 12 hours of sunlight and nighttime. So uh, the winter solstice, December 22nd, not December 25th. And um, so no Christian writer prior to the 12th century suggested that September 25th was chosen to replace Sol Invictus, which was the date the Romans worshipped the sun god. Matter of fact, it could be the other way around. So in 204 AD, St. Hypolitus, that, that's an unusual name. How'd you like to name your kid that? St. <laughs> Hypolitus of Rome wrote of Christ's birth on December 25th. This was 70 years before the Roman emperor Aurelian established Sol Invictus as a, a holiday um, when they would worship the sun. So uh, here's what St. Hypolitus wrote. Uh, for the first advent of our Lord in the flesh, when he was born in Bethlehem was December 25th, a Wednesday while Augustus was in his 42nd year. So it could be the other way around, that the Christians were celebrating December 25th, and this pagan Roman emperor, uh, Aurelian, picked December 25th to worship the sun god on the date to try to stamp out the Christian date. Um, people say, well, what about the sheep in the fields? Well, uh, Bethlehem's only six miles from Jerusalem. And, and they needed sheep all year round because of the daily sacrifices. And lambs are born from the, the winter uh, to early spring. Here's what um, a, uh, a, a farm in England, Warhorse Valley Country Farm Park, they have a website. It says lambs are born around 145 days or about 4.5 months after the ewe falls pregnant. Lambing can start as early as December and go on as late as June. So it's very possible that lambing, where the, the sheep give birth to lambs, takes place in December. And the temperature of Jerusalem is moderate. And in the wintertime, it's uh, a low of 42.3 and a high of 56. It's sort of like Flagstaff, Arizona. It's not really cold. And um, and then, but whatever the date was, and we, we don't want to be dogmatic about this because you all those old calendars are confusing, so there's enough things for Christians to argue over. So if you have friends that believe that it's a different date, don't get into a fight over it. Um, but whatever date that we have, where the most important thing is the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. That uh, we are more than just a creation. Once Jesus became one of us, all of a sudden, now humanity is elevated, and um, Jesus, uh, he rose from the dead with a human body. And so for the rest of eternity, Jesus will have a human body, right? This was a, a, a momentous in all of uh, the creation of the universe that God became man. And um, 
So uh, that was the one thing is December 25th date. And then I do go through the, the St. Nicholas traditions. If you like, I can go through that as well. Wow, that was uh, that was fascinating. So um, that well, that last quote that you gave said that Jesus, I think it was Hypolitus, said Jesus was um, born on a Wednesday. And so if that's true, did he also die on a Wednesday? Just a curious fact there. Um, womb to tomb. Yeah, tell us about Santa Claus, Bill, uh, or St. Nicholas, as uh, the, the real man was named. So Luke 2 says, And it came to pass in the day they went a decree from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be taxed, should have an enrollment. In other words, be tracked. And so Caesar had the largest empire in the world at this time. He was a it's sort of like a one-world government guy. And if he could have had 5G and cell phones and facial recognition software, I bet he'd been tempted to use that to track people. Um, but the, everyone had to go to their city. And um, uh, you have um, Joseph also went up from Galilee out of the city of Nazareth into Judea, the city of David called Bethlehem to be taxed with Mary, his espoused wife, being great with child. And suddenly there was uh, angels, multitude of heavenly hosts, praising God, saying, glory to God in the highest peace on earth, goodwill toward men. Now, this is significant. All dates of anything that has ever happened in human history on planet Earth is dated to the birth of Christ. B.C., before Christ, A.D., Anno Domini, in the year of the Lord's reign. And so even the secular attempts to avoid it, B.C.E., before Common Era, and C.E., Common Era. You go to these archaeological museums, and they'll put B.C.E. and C.E. It's like, okay, when did it change from before Common Era to Common Era, uh, the birth of Christ? It's mm. like, you can't get away from it. Yeah. Everything in the world is dated to the birth of Christ. And I love the quote from Clarence Mannion, and he was the dean of the Notre Dame Law School, uh, appointed by Eisenhower to positions. He wrote a book called Keys to Peace in 1951, sold millions of copies. And Clarence Mannion wrote this. The long march of measured time suddenly stopped. It then did an about face and started to march in another direction and to a different drum straight through the ensuing centuries of Christ and Christendom. B.C. before Christ and A.D. Anno Domini, the year of our Lord, mark each one of the only reliable milestones on the path of world history. The end of the first time chain and the beginning of the second came together on the night that Christ was born in Bethlehem. The first Christmas day thus stands as the great divide for the timing and recording of all people, things and events that have lived or taken place on this upon this earth. The one place on the long, long trail of time where the magnetic needle of history stands vertical and points up. Isn't that beautiful? That's incredible. That yes. Every single thing on Earth is dated to the birth of Christ. But on that very day, the magnetic needle of history points up. Amen. And the Son of Man came not to serve, uh, but the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. That's Mark 10, 45. The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Jesus knew that he, his, the purpose of him coming was to take the wrath of God, the judgment for all of our sins upon himself on the cross. God is a just God. He cannot change his nature. He's just, which means he has to judge every sin. 
In mathematical equations, you have constants and variables. The constant in the equation of redemption is God is just, was, is, and forever will be just. The variable is who takes the judgment, you or a substitute. And Jesus is our substitute. He's our propitiation. He took the judgment in our place so we can approach this completely just God and not have to worry about being judged because all the judgment we deserve went on Christ and we are in Christ. So anyway, so uh, I like to point out that the church was born into a one world anti-Christian government, the Roman Empire. <laughs> I mean, if you and I were yeah, going to start, yeah. it's like, give them a break for a couple of years. No, immediately the church is persecuted. Jesus says, you shall receive power after the Holy Ghost has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses to me, both Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, uttermost parts of the earth. The word witness in Greek is martyr. martyr. So you're going to give your life for Jesus. So 11 of the 12 apostles were martyred. John, the one that wasn't, was thrown in a pot of oil and survived. And then there were three centuries of Christian persecutions. Uh, I went to school in Rome in college, and we toured the catacombs. You have to crawl through these little places and tunnels and and they'd have first century Christian graffiti on the walls and and, you know, little niches where they would, you know, put the bone to somebody that had died earlier and uh, they would they would bury him. And then uh, like, a, you know, 50 years after they were buried, they would reuse the tomb for somebody else. They'd gather up the bones and put them in a, a jar and then they would put them in there. And, and um, so these catacombs, that was the Christian experience every time. You got together for church. You were risking your life hmm. because the government could raid these places and take you to the Colosseum and they'll throw you to the lions. And um, so you had Nero, Domitian, Trajan, Marcus Aurelius, Septimus Severus, persecution, persecution, persecution. And uh, Nero reportedly set fire to Rome. It was like an insurrection. And he blamed it on the innocent Christians. And he had them arrested, wrapped in burlap, dipped in tar, and stuck on poles in his garden. They were called Nero's torches. And uh, so these persecutions go on. And every now and then there'd be a, a lapse in persecution. And one was 260 AD. Emperor Galenius suspended the persecution. And guess what? Christianity continued to explode in growth. And a lot of people in the military, a lot of soldiers became Christian. And then you had Emperor Diocletian. And he loses some battles with Persia. And he asked his generals why. And the general said, well, you've neglected having the army worship the Roman gods. And so Diocletian says, okay, army, get back to worshiping the Roman gods. Well, there's a lot of Christians in the military at this time, and they can't, so they are purged. Once all the Christians are purged from the military, he decided to use the military to enforce to force the entire Roman Empire to return to worshiping the Roman gods, right? We're seeing a purging today of Christians out of the military. Yes. What happens next? Well, the next step is to use it, like the, you purge the Department of Justice, you purge the FBI, you purge them, and then you use them to go after your political opponents. And in this case, they arrested pastors, closed churches, burned scriptures, killed the leaders. They wanted to exterminate Christianity. And, um, and so this went on until the Christians prayed, 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 and and then Diocletian was struck with an intestinal disease and abdicates the throne on May 1st, 305 AD. During this time is when St. Nicholas lived, during this persecution of Diocletian. St. Nicholas is the most popular Greek Orthodox saint. 
He lived during Roman times and gave to the poor. Uh, he is to the Greek Orthodox Church what St. Peter is to the Roman Catholic Church. He's like the founding father of the Greek Orthodox Church. There are more Greek Orthodox churches named after Nicholas than anybody else. And so he, the story is that he was born in a town called Patara, Asia Minor. Today, that's Turkey. And his parents were wealthy and uh, elderly, and they died when a plague swept through town. And he, as a young man, inherits all the wealth. Now, a movement was sweeping through Christianity at this time. It was called pietism. And the thought was, if you really become a Christian, you would give away all your money and live in a cave as a hermit and or join a monastery and take vows of silence. And so this um, uh, it was sort of a separation of church and state concept. It was like, okay, I'm going to withdraw from the world and I'm just going to enjoy my own relationship with Jesus and I'm not really going to care about what. Anyway, and, and so uh, Nicholas decides he's going to give away his money, but he does it, decides to do it at nighttime and throw the win money in the window of poor people so that God would get the glory and not him. Because if he gave it away and everybody knew, they'd say, oh, Nicholas gave us this money. No, he only wanted God to get the glory. So a story that was popular was a merchant in the town of Patara had gone bankrupt. And the creditors would not only take your house and land, they would take your children. And uh, this merchant had three beautiful daughters. He knew if they were taken, it would probably be sex trafficking, prostitution, terrible life. And so the merchant had an idea. He thought if he could hurry up and marry his daughters off, the creditors couldn't take him. Unfortunately, he did not have money for a dowry, which was needed in that area of the world for a legally recognized wedding. So late one night, Nicholas throws some money in the window. The oldest daughter has a dowry. She gets married. Big buzz. Talk of the town. Then he throws money in the window for the second daughter. She has a dowry. She gets married. Big buzz. Talk of the town. And so there's all this artwork for centuries of Nicholas throwing money in the window of this guy with his three daughters. And uh, uh, finally, it's the third daughter's turn. And the dad is expecting Nicholas to throw the money in the window. And he's waiting up. And when Nicholas throws the money in the window, uh, the dad runs outside and catches him. And Nicholas makes the father promise not to tell where the money came from because he wanted the credit to go to God and not to him. This is the origin of the tradition of secret gift giving on the anniversary of Nicholas's death, which was December 6th, 343 AD. The midnight visits from St. Nicholas, supposedly the money he was thrown in the window was landing in a shoe or a stocking that was drying by the fireplace. So that's where these traditions originated. And um, uh, and here's a, an artwork of a stained glass window. Nicholas throwing the money in, the daughter's picking it up, and then look at the says under the stained glass window. He provides a dowry for three girls. And so Nicholas is often portrayed holding three bags of gold to symbolize these, or three gold balls to symbolize the money he threw in the window for these three daughters to get married. And as a result, he became the patron saint of pawnbrokers. <laughs> Seriously, that's what they claim. Wow. And the three gold balls in front of a pawnbroker shop symbolize the three bags of gold that Nicholas threw in the window. And the pawnbrokers are like, we help people out in their time of financial need. It's like a little bit of a stretch. Uh, but anyway, um, there's more to the story there. But uh, if we need to take a break, I can come back and finish. Uh, all right. So uh, why don't we go ahead and do that? We're a couple minutes ahead of time, but we'll go ahead and take a break and be right back in about 90 seconds. 
At Truth and Liberty Coalition, we work to unify, educate, and mobilize the body of Christ to change nations. That's why I want to encourage you to go to our website at truthandliberty.net and subscribe so that you can begin receiving regular updates uh, about our show, news items, action alerts, blog posts, and much, much more. Uh, all you have to do is go to the website, click subscribe, share your email address, and you'll begin to be equipped to stand for truth in the public square. Are you in ministry and want to connect with other like-minded ministers? Andrew Womack founded the Association of Related Ministries International, or ARMY, to serve, equip, and empower you for success in your ministry through relationships, community, and resources. But just being a part of this, uh, being filled with the Word of God and with ARMY, and fellowshipping, knowing that I have other ministers with me, it is awesome. We have met such precious people through Army. Uh, there's people I know I can call when I'm in a jam. Ministers have a safe place to come. We can unify and unite for the kingdom. As an Army member, some of the benefits you'll enjoy are Bible teaching correspondence courses, regional advocates for personal support and ministry, regional events for networking, one-on-one -on -one ministry and encouragement, our monthly newsletter, and more. You don't have to do ministry alone. Join this growing network of dynamic and elite ministers from across the U.S. and around the world today. Okay, well, we're back here on the Truth and Liberty Live call-in show. I'm Richard Harris. My guest today is our good friend, board member, and historian, uh, Bill Federer. Bill has been tracing the history of Santa Claus or St. Nicholas uh, for us. And, and uh, you were just saying, Bill, that St. Nicholas, uh, according to legend, went... Uh, went around at night giving gifts to the poor. And there's one family with three daughters where he supposedly threw the money in the window and it landed in stockings and so on. Why don't you pick up where you were leaving off? How did we get from St. Nicholas being an actual historical figure in Turkey uh, during the reign of Diocletian to uh, Santa Claus that we have today? Well, it's fascinating. So after he gave away all his money, he decided to join a monastery in Jerusalem called the Mount Zion Monastery. And he was going to take his vows of silence and we would never hear from him again. And uh, it was, uh, again, some of these churches are like, oh, it's just, you know, just you and God. It's a personal. And, uh, and right before he took his final vow, somehow the Lord spoke to him and told him not to hide his light under a bushel. So he decides he's going to go back to Asia Minor, today that's Turkey, and he gets off at a big city called Myra. And there's ruins of it today. <clears throat> it's a Demre, Turkey. And um, so uh, his habit was to fast and pray and not eat food until after communion. And then he would break the fast. Matter of fact, this was a common practice. And so they, they gave the, the term break fast or mm -hmm. breakfast. And so he would fast lots. Uh, every week he'd fast for days, and he had a, a, a reputation of being very holy. So unbeknownst to Nicholas, the bishop of Myra had died, and the church leaders could not decide who the next bishop was going to be. And so they were praying and fasting, and one had a dream or a vision somehow that the Lord told them the first person to church the next day would be named Nicholas, and he was to be their next bishop. So uh, Nicholas walks in the door, they ask his name. When he says, Nicholas, they say, follow us, take him to the others. And they say, you're supposed to be the bishop. Well, he was not too thrilled because the Roman emperor Diocletian was arresting bishops and killing them. 
So it was sort of like, uh, you be the bishop. No, 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 I insist, you first. No, really, you first. I mean, it was like nobody really wanted to be the bishop because you're putting a big target for the government to come after you. But he agrees. Uh, and uh, the um, Diocletian was this you know, wicked emperor. He is arrested. He's put in prison. And he's in prison for several years. And while he's in prison, a Diocletian is struck with an intestinal disease so painful he abdicates the throne on May 1st, 305 AD. You have to appreciate the poetic humor. By this time, emperors had been declaring themselves a god with a little g and sprinkling gold dust in their hair and demanding that their image be worshipped. So this was sort of like a god resigning. And he goes across the Adriatic Sea. He... Um, uh, builds a palace, and uh, the next emperor is Galerius. He continues the persecution of Christians. He's struck with an intestinal disease. He dies in 311 AD. Now there's no emperor, and there's four generals. They decide to fight it out. Who's going to be the next? Two are defeated. It comes down to Constantine and Maxentius. Constantine is a general in York, Britain. Britain had been a Roman colony since 55 BC when Julius Caesar first invaded and Constantine and his men march toward Rome. And it's the Battle of the Milvian Bridge in 312 AD. Well, the day before the battle, Constantine reportedly saw the sign of Christ in the sky and puts it on all of his shields and symbols, and he wins. Now, what's the sign of Christ? It's the first two letters in the Greek name for Christ, right? The Hebrew word is Messiah, but Greek is Christus, and the letter that makes the K sound is written in Greek as an X, and the letter that makes the R sound for Christ, the R sounding letter, is written as a P, and it's called Rho. So the X is called the Chi, and the, the R letter, the P, is called the Rho. So it's called Chi Rho. And he sees this, he puts it on all of his shields and symbols. Supposedly, he heard the words, in hoc signal vinces, which means in this signal, this sign, you'll be invincible. And so this uh, fourth and fifth century Christian artwork will always have the Cairo, the X and the P and the IHSV in hoc signal vinces. Over the centuries, it got shortened from, from the Cairo just to the Chi, just to the X. It was called the Christ's cross. And that's where you get Xmas. So X hyphen M-A-S is not the X crossing out Christ. It's the Greek letter Chi, which stood for Christ. Mm -hmm. And it became the form of an oath where you'd say, cross my heart, swear to tell the truth. Well, crossing your heart is the, is the Christ's cross. And then it came down to uh, you'd sign a document and you would sign it the Christ's cross, swearing you're going to keep your promise. And that come down to us as sign at the X. Yeah. And then they kiss it to show sincerity, and that's come down to us as the X's and the O's on the bottom of the Valentine. You're showing for Christ, so you're going to keep your promise to this person, and you're kissing it to show sincerity. Anyway, so we got the, the Cairo, Constantine, and he issues the Edict of Milan in 313 AD, officially ending the persecution of Christians. And Nicholas is let out of jail. And at this time, he preaches against paganism. They still had human sacrifice going on in areas of Greece. They had exposure of, of unwanted children. Um, what's that? So the Roman practice was the, the mother would bear the child laid at the father's feet. 
if the father picked it up, they would keep it. But if he did not pick it up, if he thought it looked unhealthy or they didn't have enough money, the mother would have to put the baby in a basket and put it out in the woods and give her tearful goodbyes and let the baby be exposed to the elements and die. And um, that's where you get these stories of um, a, a knock on the door and the old couple opens the door and there's a baby in the basket. Who leaves a baby in the basket? The Romans did. And so these Christians had a reputation of raising these children. And so these pagan Roman women would, would, didn't want to let them out in the woods. They'd give them to the Christians. And, um, and so, the Christ, so Nicholas preaches against this terrible practice of exposure of unwanted infants. If he'd have been alive today, he would have been a pro-life preacher. And then he preaches against divination. What's that? The pagans would cut open a chicken and look at its gizzards and look at the liver and try to predict the future. I mean, they had whole Roman priest courses on how to interpret a liver. And, and so Nicholas is preaching against this pagan stuff. And then he preaches against sexual immorality. Nearby is Ephesus with a temple to Diana. It's one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. 127 huge pillars, twice as big as the Parthenon, and temple prostitutes. It was the, uh, the Las Vegas of the Mediterranean and Apostle Paul preached against Diana worship at Ephesus in Acts chapter 19. And the people got so stirred up, they eventually tore the temple to Diana down. So Nicholas would have been preaching against all this perverted sexual agenda type stuff going on today. And, um, and they preached against the Olympics because the Greeks ran them naked. The word gym for gymnasium, the word gym is Greek for naked. And you'd have the, the wrestling and the running. And, and so they outlawed that. Even Rome itself was, uh, their legend is that they were uh, two boys, Romulus and Remus, that were abandoned in the woods. And a wolf came by and nursed them and they grew up. And that was the founders of Rome. Well, who leaves babies abandoned in the woods? The Romans did. And um, now... Nicholas, so he's preaching against paganism. He's preaching against exposure of unwanted infants. He's preaching against divination. He's standing up to all these cultural uh, heathen practices. Then there's the Arian heresy. So uh, Arius was a bishop, and he begins to say that Jesus is less than God. He is a created being, and he writes a catchy song. And the Visigoths who had immigrated into Rome were converting to Arianism, and it was splitting the church. And since Constantine had made the Christian church the de facto religion of Rome, it's splitting the Roman Empire. So Constantine orders and pays for all the bishops to come together for the very first time in history at Nicaea, which is near Myra, and they settle it. They write the Nicene Creed, and they excommunicate Arius. And the pictures of the consul in Nicaea has Arius in the hole in the bottom of the, the picture, right? He's being cast out. And the tradition is that Nicholas was so upset at Arius for starting the Arian heresy that he slapped him across the face. And so you see these, these artwork of Bishop Nicholas slapping Arius for starting the Arian heresy. I was uh, looking online for some photos of this, and I somebody posted this. So it's Nicholas, and it says, I came to give presents to kids and to punch heretics. I just ran out of presents. <laughs> <laughs> no. uh, and so the Greeks have lots of stories. Some are more believable than others. But one is there was a famine, and uh, the people were starving. He goes down to the docks, 
and the ships filled full of grain coming from North Africa would stop off in Asia Minor on their way to Rome. He talked the sailors into unloading grain to feed his people, promising that when they that God would bless them. And on their return trip, they said the grain that was left had multiplied. And they had more than enough, like the little widow's meal barrel for with Elijah. And, and then a storm was in that port city, and the sailors and fishermen couldn't get back, and they were afraid they were going to drown. And they get Nicholas, he prays, the sea becomes calm. And so Nicholas is the patron saint of sailors, in addition to being the patron saint of pawnbrokers. <laughs> and then uh, there's a corrupt politician, a governor. And he's doing his corrupt, dirty backroom deals, and some soldiers find out about it. And so he accuses these soldiers and has is going to have them executed. We're familiar with politicians, and when somebody knows their corruption, they find them dead or suicided or something. And so Nicholas hears about this execution about to take place. He goes down, breaks through the crowd, grabs the sword out of the executioner's hand, throws it down, and then in front of everybody, by knowledge given him by the Holy Spirit, he tells them the corrupt stuff this governor was doing, and the governor knows nobody could know the details other than God, and he repents and prays, asks Nicholas to pray for him, and so there's this artwork of Nicholas grabbing the sword out of the executioner's hand, and um, and so then he dies on December 6th, 343 A.D., and um, now another thing that we point out is um, Western Europe celebrates Christmas, December 25th as the holiest day. Eastern Europe celebrates Epiphany when the three wise men visited as the holiest day. They couldn't decide which day was holier, so they decided to make all 12 days from December 25th to January 6th the 12 days of Christmas. Gotcha. So the 12 days of Christmas are not the 12 days leading up to Christmas. They're the days between December 25th and January 6th. They call them holy days. And over the centuries, Holy Day got pronounced holiday. So when they say, don't say Merry Christmas, just say Happy Holidays. Well, holiday means Holy Day. And what are the Holy Days but the 12 days of Christmas anyway? So they can't get away from it. So you, around this time, you have Justinian. He uh, is the Christian Roman emperor, builds the big church, the Hagia Sophia. And he builds a church, and it's named after Nicholas. And um, then you have uh, Russia, the Vladimir the Great decides to convert to Greek Orthodox Christianity, and he adopts Nicholas as the patron saint of Russia. So that's why you have so many churches and czars and people named Nicholas over in Russia. And then Muslims invade. And 1071, they start invading into the Byzantine Empire. And they eventually wipe out all seven churches mentioned in the book of Revelation. Uh, Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, Laodicea, all wiped out by the Muslim Turks. And when they would come in, they would destroy churches and destroy graves. And people forget, in 846 AD, uh, 11,000 Muslims invaded Rome, and they trashed the bones of St. Peter. And so uh, the Greeks were afraid, so they decided to move the graves of St. Nicholas from, uh, by the way, the Pope built a 39-foot wall around the Vatican after the Muslims had invaded. So the Christians uh, moved the bones of St. Nicholas from Myra in Asia Minor over to Bari, Italy, and put him in a church there. And um, you uh, had visited that church. So yes. uh, what did tell a little bit about that. Oh, well, yeah, we, we uh, on a trip to Italy, um, uh, we were actually ministering in Bari, uh, Italy, and uh, uh, went to the cathedral or basilica, whatever it's called there in, in Bari, I can't remember. And a 
it's called, I think it's called the Basilica of St. Nicholas, I think is what it's called. So we went in and, and on the left-hand side right there in a glass case is a wax figure life-size of a depiction of St. Nicholas in his uh, bishop regalia and robes and all of that sort of thing. And then they have a crypt uh, downstairs uh, underneath the church uh, where his bones are reportedly located. So uh, everything you've said is exactly right. And, um, and so the Pope that dedicates this Cathedral de Nicola de Bari is Urban II. And you know Urban II because he called for the First Crusade. All these Greeks are fleeing west. And so there's um, uh, two centuries of crusades. Richard the Lionheart led the Third Crusade. St. Louis led the Seventh and Eighth Crusades. But yet the jihadis have 14 centuries of crusades that are still going on. And um, uh, I thought this was interesting. A uh, Turkish newspaper... Uh, a couple of decades ago, uh, said the Turkish cultural and tourism minister, Erdogan Gurney, told reporters <laughs> in Antalya that uh, there were plans to demand the return of the bone to St. Nicholas. So like, they wanted the bone back for their like tourist attraction. Um, now, uh, Nicholas has his remains in Bari, Italy. These Italians begin to adopt the St. Nicholas Day observances of gift giving. And it became so popular that St. Francis of Assisi, sort of in protest, created the nativity scene in 1223 AD, saying, look, all the gift giving is fine, but we need to get back to the real reason for the season. Jesus was born in a manger. The Son of God became man, Emmanuel, God with us. Then the Reformation happens, Martin Luther ends the saints' days. I mean, by this time, 1517, there is a saint's day for every day of the year. Churches are filled full of statues and relics and sepulchers and go in their side altars. And, and he considers this a distraction from Christ. He ends the saint's days, but the Germans like the gift giving. So he moves all the gift giving to December 25th and says all gifts come from the Christ child. And the German pronunciation of Christ child is Chris Kindle. And over the years, Chris Kindle got pronounced Chris Kringle. Right. So Chris mm. Kindle, it's really Chris Kindle. Chris Kindle is Christ child. And they said that uh, this is the gifts come from the Christ child. And now the same way that uh, St. Patrick was from Britain and he evangelized the Druid pagan illiterates in Ireland. And he used the three leaf clover to teach the Trinity, Father, Son, the Holy Ghost, three in one. Another mi missionary from Britain was named St. Boniface. And in the 700s, he evangelizes these pagan, illiterate Germans. And the Germans worshipped Thor. That's where you get the word Thor's Day. And the, the Quakers uh, refused to say uh, Thursday. Um, they actually called it Fifth Day. So Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, <laughs> Fifth Day, because they, they didn't want to mention the pagan god Thor's Day. Mm. And um, so uh, the time period that St. Boniface is evangelizing these Germans is the same time Charles Martel is stopping the Muslims from invading France mm. at the Battle of Tours. And so in Geismar, Germany is an oak tree, and that's where Thor lived, and Boniface chops it down. And one of the pagan Germans say, well, stop him, and someone else said, well, if Thor is really a god, he can certainly protect his own tree. And so um, uh, the uh, once he chops it down, uh, it was an oak tree, and um, they would the, the pagans would have their groves, you know, in, in Israel, and, and Gideon chops down the grove of these oak trees. And so, um, and then uh, Nick uh, Boniface, 
He's also called Winfred. He points to an evergreen tree and says, let this be the tree of the Christ child. It points toward heaven, it's evergreen, and, um, and very similar to uh, using it as a representation of the Trinity, Father, Son, the Holy Ghost, three sides to the evergreen tree. And so Henry Van Dyke, who wrote Joyful, Joyful, We Adore Thee, Henry Van Dyke wrote uh, the first Christmas tree. And he uh, writes this, the day before Christmas in the year of our Lord, 722, uh, uh, Boniface chops down Thor's oak tree. And he points to an uh, evergreen tree, he says, not a drop of blood, uh, shall fall tonight, for this is the birth night of Christ, because they would sacrifice in front of that oak tree. Uh, birth night of Christ, son of the All-Father, Savior of the world. And he points to the evergreen tree and said, that this little tree, a young child of the forest, shall be a home tree tonight. Its wood is of peace. Your houses are built of fir. It's a sign of everlasting life. Its branches are evergreen. It points toward heaven. Let this be called the tree of the Christ child. And leather, let us gather about it with loving gifts of kindness. And in Fritzlar, Germany, there is St. Boniface, Winfred, holding an axe on the stump of a big tree, an oak tree, and he's holding the church because he's evangelizing these Germans. And so the evergreen tree is symbolic of Germans converting to Christianity, just like the three-leaf clover is symbolic of the Irish converting to Christianity. Now, what about lights? Lights at this time of year go back to Hanukkah, 165 BC, and you have the um, uh, the Greeks, the Syrians. So Jews are taken captive to Babylon under Nebuchadnezzar. Cyrus lets them go back. They rebuild the temple. And then Alexander the Great conquers Persia and uh, he dies. His empire is divided into four and the Seleucid Empire controls Jerusalem. And the Seleucid king Antiochus Epiphanes wants to wipe out uh, Hebrew faith, and uh, they, the Maccabees drive out him, and they clean this, the temple. There's only enough oil for one night. Uh, they, they, one day they pour it in, and um, it was an oil lampstand, and it, it burns for uh, eight days, and so that's where the Feast of Hanukkah is. Uh, Jesus celebrated the Feast of Dedication. It says he was in Jerusalem, Book of John, mm -hmm. Feast of Dedication, and the Jews say, tell us plainly, are you the Christ? And, uh, and so Martin Luther is credited for taking lights and putting them on the evergreen tree. So the Jews had their menorahs in their windows at this time of year. And so the thought is that may have given Martin Luther the idea of putting lights on the Christmas tree. Martin Luther tells his children, this is like the sky above Bethlehem on the night of Christ's birth. And um, so... Um, I thought it was interesting. There's a woodcut of Martin Luther with his family, and uh, there's a little boy in the background with a crossbow, and uh, he's, you could put your eye out with that thing. It reminds <laughs> you of the movie, right? And um, anyway, now we look at, at England. It gets a little more interesting. I'll try to go through it quickly. Henry VIII brings the Reformation to England, not because he had a spiritual experience like Martin Luther. He just wanted another wife. He ended up having six wives. And instead of focusing back on the Christ child, Mark, uh, Henry VIII brings back an old Roman holiday, Saturnalia. We have to remember, Britain used to be a Roman colony from 55 BC when Julius Caesar invaded. And Saturn was their god of feasting and plenty and merriment. If you ever saw the Christmas Carol with Charles Dickens, there's the spirit of Christmas present. And he's this big guy with robes and wreaths in his hair and a goblet of wine. And you're looking at him asking yourself, who is this guy? He sort of looks like Santa, but he sort of looks like some Roman god. 
Well, that's who he was. He was Saturn, but they Christianized him and called him Father Christmas. Mm. They couldn't call him St. Nicholas because saints were outlawed after the Reformation. And so during Henry VIII's time in England, Christmas became a party time, sort of like Mardi Gras. People forget Mardi Gras used to be a religious day. It was the day before Lent when you would fast 40 days before Easter to celebrate Jesus rising from the dead. And now it's a lewd party in New Orleans. So under Henry VIII, Christmas became this party time in England, and the uh, Puritans did not like that. And the Puritans eventually took over England, and they outlawed Christmas. The Puritans were so—this is what Cotton Mather, the Puritan leader, writes. Can you in your conscience think that our Holy Savior is honored by mad mirth, long eating, hard drinking, lewd gaming, rude reveling, a mass fit for a Saturn or a Bacchus or a night of Mohammed and Ramadan? You cannot possibly think so that at the birth of our Savior, for which we owe as high praises to God, we take time to please the hellish legions and do actions that have much more of hell than of heaven in them. And so the Puritans were so strict, they outlawed Shakespeare from mentioning God in his plays, and they eventually tore Shakespeare's theater down. And this is when the pilgrims come to America. And the pilgrims did not celebrate Christmas. Uh, Christopher Jones, the captain of the Mayflower, writes in his ship's log, December 25th, 1620, at anchor, Plymouth Harbor, Christmas Day, but not observed by these colonists, they being opposed to all saints' days, etc. A large party went ashore this morning, fell timber, began building. They erected the first house, 20 feet square for the common use, received goods. William Bradford says the next year, some more pilgrims came. And he writes one more incident rather amusing. On Christmas Day, the governor called the people out to work as usual. But most of the new company excused themselves and said it went against their consciences to work on that day. So the governor told them if they made it a matter of conscience, he would spare them till they became better informed. So he went with the rest and left them. But on returning from work at noon, he found them at play in the street, some pitching the bar, some stool ball and like sports. So the governor went to them, took away their games and told them that it was against his conscience that they should play in others' work. If they made keeping of the day a matter of devotion, let them remain in their houses, but there should be no gaming and reveling in the streets. And so they even had a five-shilling fine in 1659. Whosoever shall be found observing any such day as Christmas uh, shall pay for each offense a five-shilling fine. And so the pilgrims, Puritans, and most Presbyterians did not celebrate Christmas. But the Germans and French, and especially the Dutch, did. And hmm. so let's unpack the Dutch really quick. Uh, Catholic saying is St. Peter's at the gates of heaven, while the Dutch do a take on the story, the, the scripture in Revelation, the prophecy, that Jesus will return to the end of the world to judge the living and the dead, riding a white horse. And the saints will come back with him, riding white horses. And St. Nicholas is one of the saints, so he'll be one of those riding a white horse, but he's so special, he gets to come back once a year for a little mini-judgment, a little checkup on the kids, see who's naughty, see who's nice. And so in Holland, they have St. Nicholas coming back once a year dressed as a bishop, as a saint, riding a white horse. And he's doing his checkup on the kids. And um, uh, over the years, uh, St. Nicholas, the Dutch pronunciation of St. Nicholas is Sant Niklaus. Sinterklaas or Santa Claus. So Santa Claus is the Dutch pronunciation of Saint Nicholas. 
And so saints come from where? Heaven, the celestial city, the New Jerusalem. That turns into the North Pole. And the angels uh, keep the book of works and the Lamb's book of life. Well, that turns into the book of the naughty and the nice. Mm. And um, you got this book, right? And um, in the uh, the background, uh, so here's a Dutch picture of Bishop Nicholas with this little boy, and he doesn't look too happy, right? Uh, and there's somebody in the background with a black face on. What's that all about? Um, and of course, some some scriptures. Daniel said, "I uh, I beheld the ancient of days; his throne was like fiery flame. Ten thousand times ten thousand shall before him. The judgment seat was set, and the books were opened." And then the book of Revelation, I saw a great white throne upon him sat whose face the earth and heaven fled away. And I saw the dead, small and great standing before God. And the books were opened. And another book, which is the book of life. Amen. And the dead were judged according to things that were in the book. But whoever's name was written, names written in the book of life, uh, right? And so the, when you're saved, your name's written in the Lamb's book of life. And there's a lot there, but I'm going to have to skip past it. Um, so Nicholas has a helper. And um, uh, by the way, in Norway, they didn't have horses, so he's riding a reindeer. And, uh, um, and so his helper's name is Zvarte Pete. And they tell the kids, if you're good, St. Nicholas gives you a present. If you're naughty, naughty Zvarte Pete, uh, he's a Moorish costumed helper. He's a Muslim. And in the, Muslims controlled Spain for 700 years and enslaved over a million Europeans. There were whole orders, Catholic orders in Europe called the Trinitarians, who would collect money at church services to ransom people back from slavery. And so they told the kids, if you're naughty, Zvarte Pete will put you in a gunny sack, take you back to Spain, and sell you into Muslim slavery. Oh, my goodness. So often when you tell a little boy that Santa Claus is coming, he'd start crying. Right? It wasn't like, oh, I'm excited. No, I did a call in one time, and a guy said, called in and says, yeah, I was raised in Holland, and every boy in my neighborhood, the night before St. Nicholas visited, we would go to sleep with pocket knives in our pockets. <laughs> Why is that? That's to cut ourselves out of the gunny sack in case Vart Dave Pete took us. And um, so a, a little more serious. So the Dutch settled New Amsterdam, 1624, and they built a church. And it's St. Nicholas Church. The biggest church in, in Amsterdam is the Basilica van de Heilige Nicholas. Heilige means holy, Nicholas the St. Nicholas. And so the first church in New York City, right? It was, back then it was called New Amsterdam, um, was the St. Nicholas Dutch Reformed Church, 1642, Battery Park there in New York. And it grew to being the oldest continuous congregation in America. And they had this enormous cathedral built at 48th and 5th Street, and even Teddy Roosevelt went there. But as the city became financial, the congregation dwindled and the elders decided to sell it to the Sinclair Oil Company, who tore it down in 1949. And the congregation merged with the Marble Collegiate Church with Norman Vincent Peale as the pastor. Um, anyway, um, but uh, last couple pieces to the story, um, Dutch, New York, in New York, you had Washington Irving. He is the author who wrote Rip Van Winkle, Legend of Sleepy Hollow. He's the one who coined Gotham City for New York City. And he wrote Dietrich Knickerbockers, which was a made up name, so popular that now you have the New York Knicks basketball team. Uh, Dietrich Knickerbockers, History of New York, from the beginning of the New World to the end of the Dutch dynasty, writes this in 1809. And in it, he describes Nicholas. Uh, riding over the tree to St. Nicholas, drawing forth magnificent presents, dropping them down the chimneys of his favorites. Now he visits one night a year, rattles down the chimneys, presents to children, stockings filled in the morning. And But he describes Nicholas not dressed as a bishop, but in a typical Dutch outfit. 
of a stocking hat, long trunk hose, and a large pipe. And uh, laying his finger beside his nose, gave it a significant look. Then mounting his wagon, he returned over the treetops and disappeared. And uh, so uh, now he's dressed. And then in New York, 1823, another New York writer is Clement Moore. He's an Anglican Hebrew professor, writes a poem for his children titled A Visit from St. Nicholas. Hmm. And the Clement Moore family donated land for an Episcopal seminary. And there's a park at 10th Avenue and 22nd Street called the Clement Moore Park. And so Clement Moore wrote a visit from St. Nicholas, and we all know it. And so it's night before Christmas and all through the house, not a creature was stirring, not even a mouse. The stockings were hung by the chimney with care in hopes that St. Nicholas would soon be there. When what to my wondering eyes should appear, a miniature sleigh, a tiny reindeer, and a little driver, lively and quick, I knew in a moment it must be St. Nick. Hmm. Dressed all fur from his head to his foot, clothes were tarnished with ashes and soot, bundle of toys flung on his back, looked like a peddler opening his pack, eyes twinkled, dimples merry, cheeks like roses, nose like a cherry, droll little mouth thrumped like a bow, beard of his chin white as snow, stump of a pipe he held tight in his teeth in the smoke, it encircled his head like a wreath. It's like, when did he take up tobacco? I mean, that came from the American Indians, you know, peace pipes. And I had broad little face, round little belly, shook when he laughed, bowl full of jelly, chubby, plump, right jolly little elf. I laughed when I saw him in spite of myself. So now he's an elf. Now he's shrunk down and um, filled the stockings, turned with a jerk, laying his finger aside his nose, which he borrowed from uh, Washington Irving, up, gave a nod of the chimney he rose, heard him exclaim, Harry drove out of sight, happy Christmas to all and all a good night. So now we have this evolution of the character of Santa Claus, Thomas Nast, Civil War illustrator for Harper's Weekly Magazine. He's the one that gave us the Republican elephant and Democrat mule. He does a, a version of St. Nicholas visiting with Union troops for Harper's Weekly. And in the background is a North Pole sign. And this was a political jab at the South to say St. Nicholas is associated with the North. And then you have him do a version in colors. First time he's painted red. And then the last is Coca-Cola hires Haddon Sundblom, an artist famous for designing the Quaker Oats man, man and uh, Aunt Jemima Syrup. And so Haddon Sundblom does a, hired to do a painting of St. Nicholas, now called Saint Nicholas, Santa Claus, drinking Coke. He does it every year for 33 years. And since Coca-Cola pioneered mass marketing, it's the best known trademark name in the world, Coca-Cola. This image of Santa Claus, now full grown, is the most widely recognizable image of him in the world. And um, so, uh, and, and you see this artwork, here's a picture of him smoking Lucky Strikes. It's My like, goodness. where does you know, they, they just, everybody sort of adds on something to the story. Uh, but, and when we stop and say, wait a second, uh, even though the current one has been a, a departure from the original one, there really was a Bishop Nicholas who loved Jesus so much that he became a Christian. He gave away his money. He became a, a minister, was imprisoned by the Roman emperor government. Uh, he gets out. He defends the Trinity at the Council of Nicaea. He uh, confronts uh, corrupt politicians. Uh, he's known for miracles, known for praying. But most importantly, he's generous and he gives to the poor. 
And so uh, even though he uh, doesn't come back once a year, he is in heaven. And it's good for us to say he left us a godly example of being generous so that we can remember the poor as well. And uh, there's more there in my book, um, but uh, I'll pause with that. Wow, Bill. Well, that was really fascinating. Incredible. Uh, 2,000 years almost of history there covered. <laughs> and, um, you know, uh, I just would say this, that uh, I, I, uh, when it comes to Santa Claus, we always took the opportunity to, we, we, we told our kids there was a Santa Claus when they were very little. Of course, when they grew up, they realized there wasn't one. But every Christmas morning, uh, we would have the kid, or every Christmas Eve, they would write a note to Santa, and then he would write one back that they would open on Christmas morning. And always we made a point uh, when, the, when they got the note from Santa Claus back that it would say something about Jesus and about how much he loved Jesus and how much, uh, you know, he hoped that they would worship the Lord and believe in him. So, you know, I agree that it, it's a, obviously it's a distorted over the years, but it's great to know that it does have have an actual basis in history and that St. Nicholas uh, was a real believer and a powerful man of God um, that followed Christ. So thank you so much for sharing all that with us. Well, thank you. And, um, um, you know, in, in the book, I go through all the stuff that happened on Christmas throughout history. You know, William the Conqueror is crowned King of England on Christmas Day. Charlemagne is crowned Holy Roman Emperor on Christmas Day. St. Stephen's crowned King of Hungary on Christmas Day. It's like you trace it through Western civilization. It's like the biggest date. And um, Washington crosses the Delaware on Christmas Day evening, 1776. The War of 1812, the, the peace treaty signed on Christmas Day. And, and even in... Um, 1968, uh, the Apollo um, space program, uh, Frank Borman, they're circling the moon on um, Christmas Eve of 1968, and he reads out of the, the first book of Genesis. And um, uh, anyway, it's just a, a fascinating story there of um, uh, God being recognized um, through this time in history. Matter of fact, there is even a, a postage stamp of um, these astronauts, uh, Apollo 8, and it says, in the beginning, God uh, wow. recently passed away. So um, uh, we have a, a history that is, um, is worth remembering that uh, Isaiah 7, that the virgin shall conceive and bear a child and his name shall be Emmanuel. And Emmanuel means God with us that God is with us. And then you get to the book of Revelation and it says in the new Jerusalem, there's no temple there because the Lord is with us. And so God wants to, to dwell in us and, and have us be um, uh, the body of Christ. And it's just a beautiful, beautiful thing. Well, one of the things you said too, uh, early on in today's episode was that um, Jesus was born into the midst and Christianity was birthed in the midst of a pagan anti-Christian government and empire, the Roman Empire. And, um, you know, today uh, the, uh, this show is airing the day after Christmas. We're looking ahead and we're a lot of people are looking at the circumstances here in our country, in America, and wondering 
what the future of this country might hold. And you know, this story that you've told, this sort of relay through history, I think is a powerful reminder that God is powerful and able, and uh, that doesn't that that man will do what he wants, but God's plan will be brought to pass. And we need to look up today and rejoice that that God is in control and that He's able still. Uh, to take his word and his gospel to the farthest ends of the earth and and uh, his kingdom will be built. And uh, we just need to continue serving him. And maybe we can look to St. Nicholas as an example and as an inspiration today. So um, anyway, thank you so much, Bill. I really appreciate you coming on today and hope that you and your family had a happy Christmas and, uh, and have a, a great new year. Well, uh, Richard, uh, the greetings, Christmas greetings to you and Donna and all the viewers. Uh, Merry Christmas to all and to all a good night. <laughs> well said. All right, folks. Well, thank you, Bill. And, and thank you to all of you for watching today's Truth and Liberty program. Uh, we will be back at our regular time tomorrow uh, here on our website at truthandliberty.net. You can catch the live call-in show. And tomorrow we'll be live uh, and you can call in and get your questions answered. Uh, the show begins at 3.30 p.m. Mountain Time. We'll see you then. Thank you for joining today's Truth and Liberty livecast. You can watch today's and past livecasts in our archives at truthandliberty.net. Our goal is to educate Christians and connect them with resources and organizations to help them impact their sphere of influence. You can help us accomplish this by making a donation at truthandliberty.net slash donate. Join us next time for more Truth and Liberty.